This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 4th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The key to fixing the fiscal mess in Washington is to think big. That's the message from the newly elected junior senator from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, Rand Paul, who spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit held last week in San Diego. When I got to Washington, I was told that I would get to sit at Henry Clay's desk. Henry Clay uh, is probably the most famous legislator ever to come from Kentucky. He was Speaker of the House. He was elected to the Senate at 29. You have to be 30. There are only two people ever elected at 29, Henry Clay and Joe Biden. But Henry Clay was elected, and they actually just went ahead and seated him. Even though the Constitution says you're supposed to be 30, they have a lot of uh, liberality with how they can enforce the rules, and they seated him. So he's the youngest senator ever, became Speaker of the House. He ran for president four times and really came within 38,000 votes of winning the presidency against Polk, either 18... 36 or 1840, somewhere around there. But he became very, he came very, very close. But he was also known, as most of you know, as the great compromiser. Well, the first week I was there, we were having a tour of the National Archives, and one of the other Republican senators was there, and he kind of laughing looked over at me and said, yeah, are you going to be the great compromiser? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that. And I thought about it, and I read a biography of Henry Clay, and I never really was that predisposed to like Henry Clay. I mean, everybody gives him credit. Oh, it was a great compromise. He found compromise, and he staved off the Civil War. Well, that's one perspective. Or your other perspective could be that his compromise was wrong and fraught with error from the beginning and really may have led inevitably to the war. And the other question is, is when you compromise, are there certain things that are just right or certain things that are just wrong? And people, they, they give Henry Clay, they say, well, he owned 48 slaves and sure, he freed some, but he wasn't going to free some until 25 years after his death in 1850. But they still want to give him, I think, more credit than he deserves. My point is, is that the people who argue that, well, he lived in those times and it was okay because everybody else owned slaves. The thing is, is everybody didn't think it was right even in those times. And as I read his biography, I learned about his cousin. He had a cousin named Cassius Marcellus Clay, not the one you're familiar with, but that's who he was named after. And he was a great abolitionist. He was absolutely and adamantly for abolition. And he had a small printing press. And he was very effective uh, at agitating and just downright pissing people off. One night he's in Foxtown, which I think is east of Lexington somewhere. I'm not even sure it's a real tiny town, but he was there and he had made the slave traders so mad that there was a family by the name of Squire Turner and they came upon him. They came upon him from behind and stabbed him multiple times. They got him to the ground, and Tom Turner, the son, held a pistol to his head and fired, and it misfired. He holds the pistol to his head again, and it misfires again. The third time it misfires, by then Cassius Clay's gotten his strength back, and he pulls his bowie knife and guts Tom Turner and kills him. Cassius Clay was somebody who didn't compromise. He knew what was right and wrong, and he didn't compromise. He and Henry Clay became estranged because Cassius Clay published a letter that Henry Clay had privately written to him, which seemed to indicate that Henry Clay was a little more against slavery than he ever came out in his public life for. But they became estranged. 
And I guess my question I thought through as I was thinking, will I be a great compromiser is, who are our heroes? You know, should our heroes be a Henry Clay or a Cassius Clay? There were many other great abolitionists at the time. You know, William Lloyd Garrison. I remember reading my history books as a kid, and they just described him as a zealot or a religious nut. But William Lloyd Garrison wrote in a small press, kind of like maybe a Cato press 30 years ago, a small Cato press. You know, he wrote against abol for, for abolition and for immediate emancipation. He didn't get it, but by, by standing for something, for standing for the right principle, I think he drove others, the politicians of his day, the Henry Clays who said, oh, let's send the slaves back to Africa. He drove them in the right direction. And I think it takes people like that. And to me, always my heroes have been those who are the true believers. I think we have to have that and we have to believe in that. If you start out with the compromise and if the compromise is in the middle, you're gonna get less than that. So let's start out with what we believe in. It doesn't mean we're always gonna get it, but the compromise will be much more to our liking if we start out with something our, we believe in. We'll also sleep much better at night. I've been involved with a couple of pieces of really, the Senate does move like molasses, but we've had one bill basically come up, the FAA bill. It was the authorization bill for that. And I thought since everybody was talking about going to 2008 levels, I'd just say reauthorize it at 2008 levels. So I got an amendment voted on and we lost. We got all the Republicans and no Democrats. It was gonna save $2 billion. But the point I made on the floor is if you can't cut $2 billion, how are you ever going to balance a $1.6 trillion deficit? We had another vote on that. This was a John McCain amendment that I supported. It was for getting rid of what are called essential air services. They really should be called the unessential air services. It's airports of... They go to cities of 12,000 people and 8,000 people and they could never make a profit and a commercial airline would never ever think about going in there, but some congressman lives next to this little city and so he gets a direct flight to Washington coming in. Costs about $400 million a year. Now $400 million uh, is in Washington terms nothing. Getting rid of it will not balance the budget. But if you can't vote to cut 400 million, how are we gonna ever get anywhere? We lost 10 Republicans on that one in the Senate. On the continuing resolution fight that John Boehner allowed in the House, he allowed all of these free amendments. And I think it's actually pretty interesting to see, and I'd like to see somebody do a compilation of the votes because they probably had 100 votes or more. A lot of the votes were to cut 10 million here and 20 million here and 50 million here. Most of them lost. Now we did get to where they're talking about more in cuts now. They went from 30 billion to 60 billion. But I've been trying to put that in, con in, in contrast for people to think about it. The deficit is estimated to be 1.65 trillion. You cut 50 billion, you're still at 1.6 trillion. How are you ever gonna balance the budget? Some of the Republicans have proposed statutory caps. They're well-meaning and they want to balance the budget and they're all for a balanced budget amendment, but they're talking about having spending limited to 20% of GDP in 10 years. And I raised my hand and I said, well, that means you're for not balancing the budget in 10 years because we historically bring in about 18%, so 20% will never balance. And they're like, well, yeah, but we gotta go, we gotta have a glide path, we gotta get there gradually, we'll never get there overnight. 
But I think it does help to go ahead and promote things that are more bold. We promoted $500 billion in cut, and we called it a modest proposal. We got phone calls from the media thinking it was satire, that we were using the modest and, you know, the modest proposal of SWIFT terms. I was like, no, it's modest because it is modest. It's literally modest. It would be one-third of one year's problem. But that's the disconnect here. Every Republican in the Senate, every Republican in the House will probably, probably vote for a balanced budget amendment. But everybody in my caucus and everybody on the other side says, don't lead with your chin. Don't get out in front. Don't talk about the specifics. They'll kill you. I don't think they quite understand how bad the problems are or where we are in, this, in the scheme of things. I think the public is actually far readier than they can imagine. I think the public has discounted the fact that all these things are going to have to be reformed, entitlements, spending is going to have to be cut. And I think the public is actually ready to reward those who would lead rather than waiting. But literally, I'm telling you, in our caucus meeting, they're saying, don't talk about entitlement reform. Wait for the president to talk about it. They want it to be the president to be part of this, to take part of the body blows of talking about entitlement reform. But I've started thinking about entitlement reform kind of the same way. You know when the marketplace does nothing but something dramatic happened? Like let's say the interest rates for the Federal Reserve went up one point and the market didn't react. And the commentators will say, well, the reason the market didn't go up is they've already discounted that fact because they knew three weeks ago this is what the Federal Reserve going to do what their actions would be. And everybody anticipated it was factored in. I think that's already happened with entitlements. You talk to young people, they've factored it in. You ask them, will there be Social Security at 65 or at 67 when you get there? Most of them don't even think there will be Social Security around at all. If they do think it's around, they all realize that there's some significant problem and it will have to be changed. So I think they've already discounted this, and I think then many people are looking for leadership. The other thing about being specific about the cuts is that you gain credibility with a lot of the media because a lot of the media on the other side won't give Republicans any credibility because they won't talk about specifically where the cuts will be. I think by bringing this out, though, the people, I think also the other thing you can do in talking about it is it's not always just about justifying what is so great about this program because there's always an argument for every program. I think the other half of the argument that we just have to emphasize more than what the program would have done is what's going to happen if we do nothing. If we do nothing, if this glides on and we just keep spending the way we do, within a decade, entitlements and interest will occupy the whole budget. There'll be no money left for anything. I think there's a possibility that within a decade, we have a crisis in the country. Even mainstream people like Greenspan are saying 50-50 chance something's going to happen, a bond crisis, inflation, something significant's going to happen. There are people saying that, you know, Japan is to the point of no return with its debt. There are people who are saying it's very important when a nation gets to where 100% of their GDP is their total debt. We're there within a year or so. Nations always pay their debt, and there's three ways you pay for it. You either tax people, borrow, or you print it up. I think we're at the point, and we've already created a lot of currency really in the last couple of years. We are at a point that have the repercussions of that come yet. I laughingly uh, I was talking about um, my father wrote a book, The Case for Gold, many years ago, and I laughingly say, yeah, once upon a time we had a dollar that was backed by gold. And then for many years we had a dollar that was backed by treasury bonds. But now we have a dollar that's backed by 
used car loans, bad used car loans, bad home loans, toxic assets. That's what they bought. The Federal Reserve bought $2 trillion worth of stuff, which they don't want to tell us what it is, but it basically was stuff you wouldn't buy. That's what our dollar is backed by. And I think when you think about it in those terms, it's a bit worrisome that that's what backs our dollar. As far as, you know, where do we go from here? Is Washington ready for change? Can we do anything? People ask me, are you, what are you most surprised about? I think I'm most surprised about that I think I am and others are influencing the debate already. I think the freshmen in the House are influencing the debate. I think me, by calling more for more cuts, is influencing the debate. And so I think we can change things. We're going to go ahead and come up with our own budget. I mean, they, they think it's unusual that I'm creating my own budget, but it's like the leadership is going to come up with something that really doesn't excite me. 1.6 versus $1.5 trillion. Where's the difference between the two parties? Where's the difference in policy? So we're going to come up with, because uh, I am willing to compromise, and I am pretty much a moderate at heart, we're going to balance the budget in five years. You can do it. You actually do it without even changing Social Security. Without doing anything to Social Security, you can balance it in five years. But you have to go ahead and acknowledge a couple of things. And these are the things that the Republicans aren't yet ready to do and the conservatives aren't yet ready to do. The major compromise that will have to happen, and this is all about why you can be for compromise, it's just about where you define where the compromise is going to be or what the compromise will be. The compromise, the ultimate compromise that has to occur to avoid a fiscal nightmare in Washington is conservatives have to admit that you can be for a strong national defense but cut military spending. When you admit that, you've gone a long way. They aren't there yet. There's me, Tom Coburn has said he might back me up on some of this. I think Mike Lee will, but there's two or three of us. There's still many good conservatives who don't think you can cut anything from the military. We have to get beyond that. The president's talking about freezing this much of the budget at 2010 levels, non-military discretionary spending. It does nothing, absolutely nothing to the budget. In fact, it adds $13 trillion in debt over the next 10 years. Republicans want to freeze this much of the budget at 2008 levels. It's better, saves maybe that 60, 70, 80 billion in one year, but it still never balances the budget and isn't enough. You can eliminate all the non-military spending and you don't balance the budget. That's how bad the problem is. So you have to look at military, but you also have to look at the entitlements, which is half the problem. We're going to introduce also, in addition to a five-year balanced budget plan, where we crunch all the numbers and put it out there, and that's what you need to do in order not to be called a hypocrite and just say you're not going to give the specifics. Give the specifics, and then you can defend them. We're also going to introduce entitlement reform, and we're going to have Social Security reform sometime in the next week or two. I've jokingly said, once I fix that, we'll fix Medicare, and then I may just come home for a while. But with Social Security, Basically, you fix 80% of the problem by gradually raising the age, and you can do it over 30 years, basically, and, and make Social Security solvent really forever if you just attach the upper age to longevity. We're living to about 80 now, 80 minus 10, or longevity minus 10, and, and keep it there forever, and you fix a lot of the problem. Ultimately, though, you have to do something else, and it's either changing how you calculate the increases that you give to people, the cost of living increases, or you do means testing. I lean a little more towards just doing means testing. And some say, oh, well, you're just going to make it a welfare program. But it's just sort of acknowledging that it is anyway and that there's not enough money. Um, 
the other way is it's a little bit easier to sell because if you do if you adjust it to cost of living increases the people who depend on the $600 a month from the Social Security are going to go crazy over, you know, getting rid of their increases. They already are. So, but we are going to introduce that coming up. And then I think the other thing we have to do, and I think Cato's done a great job at this, is just believing in our system. I like to call it believing in the American system, the system that is capitalism, the system that is profit, the system that is reward. I like the fact that some speakers have begun talking about how you cannot be for job creation if you're against job creators. I think we're winning some of that battle. When we extended the Bush tax cuts and we left in the people making a million dollars a year, I think they were reading some of the polls that shows that the American people believe that someday they might make a million dollars a year, someday their kids might make a million dollars a year. And so I think people do believe, to me that's the American dream, that you could succeed or that your kids could succeed. We've always believed in that mobility. So I think believing in the American dream, believing in capitalism, I think is something that we can push forward with. If we can get government out of the way, I think it's unlimited what we could do. And that's what I'm going to try to do the best, to the best of my, my ability. And I thank you very much for allowing me to be here. Rand Paul is a U.S. Senator from Kentucky. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit held last week in San Diego. You can read more on government spending at downsizinggovernment.org and cato.org.